American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. This talk was given at the Graduate Center. Those of you who are in the Civil War history world um, probably know this, that most Civil War historians, if they use images at all, uh, use very few and use them only for illustration. Sort of, here's what this general looked like, you know, or here's what, where this battlefield was. Um, and they don't really use them as evidence, first of all, or as actual pieces of culture that circulated during the time that can tell us important things about the, the era. And so I'm a little bit of an evangelist in this topic among my Civil War colleagues, kind of trying to get everyone to um, use images more widely, not only in their research as evidence, but also sort of interesting ways that you can use them in the classroom also um, to help students understand the Civil War and then also give them um, really good research tools. Um, so some of the things I'm actually going to kind of do a hybrid sort of talk and discussion. So I'll have some questions for you along the way um, that sort of model a little bit maybe what you could do with your students in the classroom um, with images like the ones I'm going to show you. Um, and then you guys should also feel free to just raise your hand and ask questions whenever they occur to you. Um, we've got plenty of time. Um, so we will do this thing. So <clears throat> as I am sure you have already discussed, uh, during um, this past week in the first section of the seminar. Um, during the Civil War, photographers traveled with armies in the field or based in cities and towns um, across the United States, and they produced thousands of images um, that were sold um, as individuals, as tintypes, as stereo cards that you would put into a stereoscope reader, and they would pop in 3D um, as the sort of, what are those things called, the like, viewfinders, where you'd like, click, click? Um, Viewmasters. View Exactly, the Proto Viewmaster. Um, or as part of photographic albums or sometimes exhibits um, here in New York or DC or other large cities. Um, these photographs were also then reproduced in newspapers and magazines as illustrations, uh, sometimes altered, which is that's another interesting thing to show students the sort of original photograph and then how it appeared in something like Harper's Weekly or Frank Leslie's, um, because of course illustrators can do many things that photographers cannot during this period. Um, which is something you've probably also been discussing. Um, so visual images in the war reached a really large number of people, um, and this is why they become significant as a way to communicate kind of ideas about the war and about the progress of the war, who's winning, what the stakes are, um, the outcomes of battles, um, all kinds of important elements and events in the war. Now, most historians, I would probably say, I could probably say all historians agree <laughs> that photography, unless it's yeah, here, but um, uh, agree that photography and other forms of visual culture profoundly shaped the way that Americans both experienced and understood the war. Um, from soldiers who sat for their portraits um, in camp to civilians who cut out illustrations and pasted them in memory books, um, to veterans who looked through their photographic collections after their return home. And although images circulated in public, they were, all, they were mostly viewed in private spaces. Um, and they were therefore, I think, a really important link between the public and the private. And they provide an important way to understand the war and its aftermath and the ways that Americans created both individual and collective memories and narratives of the Civil War. 
So in Ruined Nation, I sort of track all of these images of destruction through the war itself from 1861 to 1865. But today I'm going to talk about a couple of photographs that appeared and um, were taken in 1865, um, as, as much as far as we can kind of tell for some of them. Um, and why that becomes important as sort of images created at the very, in the very um, kind of final moments of the war itself um, and what kinds of narratives it was creating, therefore, about the meaning of the war. So in late 1864 and into 1865, photographers, especially Union photographers, took increasingly increasing numbers of photographs of both architectural and corporeal or bodily ruins. Um, okay, so why is this? Well. First of all, um, images of ruined cities proliferated uh, during this period um, because ruins themselves proliferated during this period. Um, it was during the last year of the war. Sorry, this is like so vividly green. It's very bizarre. It's a, it's a flat white. It's like a ghostly white in reality. I can show them to you later. Um, but it's in the last uh, year of the war that South's most symbolic cities and most important economic and political centers um, were partially destroyed. And it's important also to remember that they were, in fact, only partially destroyed. Um, most of these, the destruction that took place, destroyed about a third of the city, um, usually the business centers, but also parts of the residential areas of these cities. Um, so Columbia, South Carolina, which was photographed uh, by Richard Wern for the Confederates um, and George Bernard for the USA. Um, Richmond, Virginia, um, photographed by Alexander Gardner and his team of photographers. Atlanta, as Greg talked about, in November of 1864, whose destruction was captured by George Barnard. Um, and then the two capitals, the two important, well, and then the important capital, Richmond. Um, sorry, I've already talked about Richmond. So, so uh, Richmond, obviously, extremely important because not only the capital of Virginia, but also the capital of the Confederacy itself. Um, and then also, um, you know, Columbia, which was the initial kind of cradle of secession uh, where um, the state legislators voted it through or were about to vote it through before they moved to Charleston. So the second reason, so ruins were proliferating at the end of the war. So there were just more of them to photograph. Um, and because Union photographers traveled with the armies, um, they finally had access to these cities where they had not before. Um, so Union photographers could not get in there, um, and the Confederate photographers usually weren't uh, uh, there. They were out with the armies themselves. And so a good example of this is Charleston, South Carolina, um, which was under Union siege starting in the summer of 1863, um, but Union troops did not actually enter the city. It did not fall until February of 1865. Um, and in fact, <coughs> George Barnard, um, who took the majority of the photographs we have here, we think didn't actually enter the city until late 65, 66, until after the war was over. And this, I think, this is, um, in Ruined Nation, I talk a lot about um, these kinds of photos that take ruins as their central subject. And I'm going to talk about something a little different today. But this is, I think, one of the most kind of haunting and visually stunning images um, of the war of Gallego flour mills in um, Richmond, Virginia. And it looks like, you know, if you just looked at it and you didn't know what the caption was, you might think it was a World War II photograph. Um, it's very modern, kind of in its austerity and its very um, vivid lines here. 
Now, images of amputees and other wounded veterans, as Aaron knows, also increased uh, near the end of the war and the years immediately after for a couple of reasons. One, the Army Medical Museum's wound documentation project, which was begun by Surgeon General William Hammond in 1862, increased after the war's end and increased in its pace of documentation with photographs and illustrations published in six volumes of the Medical and Surgical History of the War of Rebellion, um, which was published between 1870 and 1883. Also, the growth of the veterans' pension programs um, and corresponding revisions of legislative acts uh, meant that photographs of a soldier and his injuries um, could, could be submitted with a packet of other forms of proof um, of the soldier's injuries. Um, could provide proof of disability, which would mean that um, perhaps uh, that his pension amounts would increase. Also, all soldiers became, um, you know, the longer that they spent in camp, uh, the more they became familiar with and sort of comfortable with this idea of getting their picture taken. And so this was, um, it became very cheap um, and very easy to just go into the photographer's tent, uh, get your photograph taken, and then have eight or ten copies of it and send them home, right? This is a sort of proof of life and a kind of souvenir of the war. And so when soldiers came home, they continued this practice. They had uh, they had portraits taken of themselves. They also had portraits of themselves uh, taken with their families. So this um, Private George Warner, also the other photograph taken by Peck here, is a photograph of him with his family um, where he's sort of demonstrating uh, that he has come back home um, and has re-entered um, civilian life and has um, kind of rejoined his family um, in a productive and happy way, although he doesn't look particularly happy here. Um, so both of these types of images of architectural ruin and bodily ruin offered many opportunities to convey certain messages about the war's purpose and outcome. And the majority of the ones, well, actually all of the ones I'm going to be talking about today are union-produced images. Um, and the reason for that is that the majority of images were produced by union photographers. There were many, many more of them, just like there were many, many more um, soldiers uh, on the Union side than the Confederate side. Um, and <coughs> they were more likely uh, to get their images reproduced also in um, all kinds of different formats. So the narratives of war and the memories of war we'll be talking about today um, are union kind of oriented or union kind of sort of pro-union um, in, in their nature. So, as I have argued, um, in Ruin Nation and other venues, um, ruins were really important um, for Northerners and Southerners as visual symbols of the evolving nature of war itself um, and of the events and the impact of the Civil War in particular. Um, but I want to look at some different kinds of images this morning, those that place bodies um, among architectural ruins um, and those that depict multiple ruined bodies in different contexts so that we can examine some other kind of elements of these photographs, uh, particularly how photographers manipulated both setting and context to create, uh, again, pro-union narratives at the end of the Civil War and the destruction it caused and what it all meant. So the first one here um, is Alexander Gardner's View of Ruins, Richmond from Main Street looking down 14th Street. 
um, from 1865 to 66. And this is one image in a stereo card, so you would have been able to see this either individually or um, in a 3D format. Um, so this image contains several elements that characterize uh, urban ruin photography during the war. Um, first of all, we have a view from an angle. We are not looking straight at this ruin, we are looking kind of sideways at it. Um, so why do you think Gardner chose to position his camera where it is, sort of, I should also note this, there's an intermediate distance between the photographer and the ruin itself. Also, he's across the street, which is also something very common in ruin photography. So why do you think he's doing that? Or made that choice? Yeah. In a stereo card, that would make the three-dimensional illusion pop out So he's already thinking about form, right? And how this card is going to look to the viewer. It also gives you more visual information rather than seeing it straight on. You really get a sense of the overall description. Yes, indeed. Whenever you take um, an image from an angle like this, you can see all of the windows and the trees in between, right? It, it, you understand that it's a ruin and it's lost all these other walls because you're seeing it from that vantage point. He's allowing you, as the viewer, to look through the windows um, and understand that it's a ruin. Um, there are also here a lot of different forms of contrast, um, visual contrast between the building and the sky, which here again, this lovely shade of green, is a flat white, um, as most of you have probably discussed this the effect of photography during this period is that you either expose the kind of objects or the sky, and so you most of them have a kind of flat uh, sky that's just a sort of you know June gloom sort of sky. Um, if you live in Los Angeles, um, and although photographers like Barnard began to play a, around with this and took photographs of the sky itself and then superimposed them, so that some of his photographs actually do have clouds, um, which is how you know that he manipulated the image um, and combined two of them. Um, there's also the contrast between the rubble over here on the right and the standing ruin itself. Uh, they haven't yet cleaned up this space between the time uh, that Richmond was destroyed on April 2nd, uh, the night of April 2nd and into April 3rd, um, and the time that Gardner took this image. Um, and then also between the buildings and the people. So you've probably also talked about figures and their function um, in um, a lot of these images in traditional landscape painting. Figures serve a couple of purposes. They um, provide scale, for one. Um, so you can see the sort of scale of the, <coughs> the destruction based on perspective. He's clearly closer to the women here on the right than he is to the individuals here um, kind of in the, the center left background who themselves are closer to the ruins. Um, but you can sort of see uh, the previous relationship between this, what would have been the standing building um, and the people here. Um, but the figures are also uh, important from a narrative perspective here, given that we know this is an image um, whose title is View of Ruins, Richmond, right? Um, so who do, we, who do we think these people are? 
How can you? Yeah. How can you tell? Again, with black and white photography, it's hard to know if this is actual, if they are wearing full, full black or if they're wearing a dark blue or some other color that would render black. But that is the, the visual effect of it, right? They're these sort of spectral figures in black kind of roaming through the town. And they are walking because you can tell because her face is fuzzy, right? So she's not posing for the photographer. They are in motion. Um, what about the other figures here? Correct me if I'm wrong. At, at this time, I think it was between one and two minutes. It was fair. It was not as slow, um, but they would have had Gardner would have been kind of setting up this image for. He would have had his wagon there. He would have had a you know taken some time setting up. They would have known that he was there, and that guy's in the kind of right here. Clearly know that he is there, right? Because they're looking right at him and at us as the viewer. So who do we imagine they are? I don't, they're this figure maybe. He's shorter than the other two. Um, but the but they are all, I mean they're they're all men. They're all wearing pants and and jackets. If they are probably not soldiers, they don't look to be in uniform. They're not wearing um, a union kepi. This guy on the left, though, maybe he's got a kind of longer coat and what looks like could be. And I'm sorry, I don't have a blow up of this. It's kind of cutting off the edge of it, but it looks like he may have. Um, cavalry boots on, he's leaning on something that's either a stick or possibly um, a sword of some kind. Um, so do we assume that these are southerners in the street? I think that is the effect that Gardner wants us to have, although this is a time in which Richmond is under Union occupation. So it could be, the women maybe not so much, but women did travel with the armies. Um, and if you had to put a kind of explanatory caption on this image, and, the, and this is another thing which I think um, is a good exercise with students, sort of what is, not only what is in this image. So first of all, I'll talk about, because um, I found it maybe, you know, those of you who use images in class, um, especially in traditional history classes, you may be able to speak to this also. I always found that students you know, they can talk about images really well because they're so comfortable with visual culture, um, especially now with Instagram and Facebook. Um, they're very familiar. They can talk with great expertise about how to manipulate a photograph, right? Um, but they don't really know how to talk about it because they don't really talk about images in that way and sort of analyze them in terms of their elements. And so um, I usually, I would hand out to, to all of my students a little packet called How to Read. Um, which included handouts on every single form of secondary sources, primary sources, and then how to read um, visual images with just the terms that they could then use and we would talk about them. So if any of you are interested in seeing that, I'd be happy to send it to you. Because um, it's really useful because I think we assume they know how to talk about it and they really just have no idea um, how to talk about it. 
But um, if you can move from a discussion of what's actually in the image to, okay, what is the narrative that the image is creating? Um, I think it's perhaps um, the a one sentence um, description of this photograph might be, you know, Richmond residents wander through the ruins of their city destroyed by Union troops on April 2nd, 1865. Um, which creates a certain vision, right? It creates a sort of idea, uh, first of all, of civilians as victims in warfare, that they are not soldiers, they are not um, on the field of battle. It also gives you a sense that war destroys much more than what is on the battlefield. Um, and it also gives you a kind of sense of, well, depending on how Gardner uh, kind of wanted to convey this, uh, either a sense of triumph uh, in that the Union came in and destroyed Richmond, the capital of the Confederacy, and now the war is over. Um, or it gives you a sense of loss, and a sense of sort of pathos or a, a kind of emotional connection here. Um, but the story of Richmond's destruction is actually not so simple. And so here's where you can move from the image itself to the historical context in really complicating the story of an image. Um, on the night of April 2nd, 1865, after Robert E. Lee notified Jefferson Davis that he would evacuate his position at Petersburg, um, functionally abandoning Richmond um, to the Union Army, um, <coughs> he suggested that the Confederate government evacuate the city. Um, and in turn, Davis ordered Lieutenant General Richard Ewell um, to destroy Richmond's tobacco, cotton, and foodstuffs before the Union troops arrived. So you, the Union did not destroy Richmond. They didn't even, they didn't get close enough to even really lay siege to it in any meaningful way. Richmond was untouched in terms of its architectural layout um, by war. It was touched in many other ways, um, but it was untouched in that sense until that night. So this was a very common defensive tactic uh, during the Civil War, to burn your own war material to keep it out of the hands of the enemy. And both the Confederacy and the Union did this constantly during the war. Um, most war material in the South was both produced and stored in cities. So this is why cities become targets, and this is why uh, in both defensive and offensive burning, they, one third of the cities are often destroyed. So you all had believed that the warehouses that were storing Richmond's war material were far enough away from other buildings that he could burn them safely. Uh, he was clearly not an expert in such matters. Uh, the embers drifted as they are wont to do, um, and ultimately the entire business district of Richmond caught fire. By the next morning, Union soldiers were in the city attempting to put out the flames. Um, so in the end, 54 blocks of buildings were destroyed, and the Union General Godfrey Weitzel sent a telegram to U.S. Grant after entering the city that said, the rebel capital, fired by men placed in it to defend it, was saved from total destruction by soldiers of the United States who had taken possession. A great number of them were African-American soldiers. So here's the, the actual context of the destruction of the city, and I think it changes our reading, um, our reading, not Gardner's narrative, um, but it 
changes our reading of this image uh, to be a little more pointed as a critique of the South, right? That they brought this upon themselves in a variety of ways, <laughs> that they not only brought it upon themselves by seceding from the Union um, and starting the war, but they literally brought the destruction on themselves um, because their own soldiers did it. This is not a popular narrative in the South. <laughs> As many of you who are from Southern states or teach in Southern states probably know, right? I mean, this is, um, yeah, if you, if you even suggest that, that soldiers under Sherman, like Greg was talking about, did not actually destroy as much as people think they did, like the hate mail starts rolling in. Yes. Actually, I lived in Richmond for two years. Oh, yeah. And this is, I, I did not really know this because the story right. is, because I lived in the part of town that the <coughs> didn't reach as right. much higher up. It was a question for us once before. Yep. And, um, and the story is, oh, well, this is where the Union Army crossed the James to get to the other side, which is why this historic district still exists. And it's, I mean, you would not know right. that this happened. Right. No one seems to right. know because it never once came up. Yeah. And they talk about this a little bit constantly. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> yes. And Monument Avenue, I mean, come yeah. on. It's crazy times over there. Yeah. That, and, but that's the image of the war in Richmond, right? And I'm not even sure you would know that Richmond burned. If you didn't know the history of the war, if you just kind of went there as a tourist, there are almost no historical markers. There are certainly no ruins that are, you know, kept in situ. Um, there, there is there. Well, there's one because we're going to talk about another image that misdirects. But there is um, the Civil War Museum. There um, is a bit of a misdirection because it is in part built in part out of ruins, but that was a post-war fire. Um, so. They sort of let it stand and be like, yeah, <laughs> destruction, um, but not civil, <laughs> civil war destruction, right? Um, so there's, uh, the important things to note about this are not only does the, the photographer shape the image itself, but by the caption or the title um, that he's giving it, he shapes your um, and most Americans at the time understanding of what um, what this scene is and what we are supposed to make, uh, you know, out of it. So, um, oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. I think it's really intriguing too. I don't know how conscious Gardner would have been of this, but it seems like very much a classical landscape and yeah. the style of Claude Lorraine. Oh, yeah. With the meandering body of water mm -hmm. here at the zigzag and down the pavement. Yep. And so, um, we've got these oppositional forces going on between women and men, but they're also at a crossroads. They're each yes. at an Exactly. In the balance, that's what you have in the Yeah. And, and this is the other interesting thing about urban, um, urban photography and then also urban ruin photography during this period is how, how much it owes a kind of visual debt to landscape painting. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, a lot of these photographers did not have a background in, in art. Um, they were coming from other fields, a lot of them mechanical <laughs> fields, some of them were clockmakers and watchmakers, which is interesting. Um, but, uh, they would have had that visual referent. Like it was enough in the culture that they would have known um, kind of, and in the same way that we know, right? Like we, you know, for those of us who are not trained uh, in art history or in painting or sculpture, we still take really good Instagram photographs, right? <laughs> we know what looks good. 
right? We shift everything around. We're like, ooh, that color's popping. Let's amp that up, right? So, so there, there is a kind of, um, I think there are many reasons for it that are referenced in the culture, but then there's also kind of underlying that kind of an aesthetic pleasure that, that comes with contrast, that people like seeing things that are in oppositional um, I think there actually is work on this in sort of studies of the eye, um, like what the what the eye registers and how it it kind of zings the pleasure centers in your brain. Um, so here's another way we can all get super interdisciplinary, get the get the sciences involved um, with this. But yes, that's definitely true, and and we see it in this photograph also, right? Again, we have a sort of middle distance. Um, <coughs> this is George Bernard's uh, image, Charleston, South Carolina view of ruined buildings. The caption actually goes on and on and on with a lot of different, like, it's like, gives the address, it's the ruins of Circular Church, which was a very famous building um, in Charleston, which is right next to actually where Barnard is standing is in the ruins of Secession Hall. Um, so this has these traditional landscape uh, elements uh, to them. Barnard also clearly stood up on something. I'm not sure what. It was either a wall or maybe even a pile of rubble because you have a slightly elevated prospect here. He's a little bit higher um, than the, the figures in this image. Um, so he's creating a kind of literal view for you, which is what prospects do. Um, then there are the, the, as you were talking about with the previous photograph, there are all sorts of different intersecting lines here. We have the horizontal line of the top of the wall, the curves of the street and the middle ground um, that give a sense of space, while the vertical lines, um, the church wall, this is um, one of the columns um, from the circular church, and it gives you a kind of sense of verticality. It's sort of extending up out of the frame. You're not exactly sure kind of where it's going, but it's sort of jutting up, and then it's, of course, um, echoing all of the chimneys that are in the background in the sort of second layer of ruins across the street. Um, and your eye, I think, follows a diagonal um, from the foreground to the background, moving, kind of going toward the boys sitting at the column and then veering to the left um, to, the, to the other road or the pathway to the other section of the town. Um, so this photograph has always been interesting to me. I've always thought it was a really amazing um, depiction of the war um, and its costs and its uh, aftermath. Um, I think it was for Barnard probably a photograph of um, opportunity. Uh, and the reason, even though the boys in this figure, these four boys who are sitting here, even though they are posed, if you can see very closely this detail right here, it's a hoop. So it seems clear to me at least that they were playing in the street. They were playing that hoop game where you run down the street and kick the hoop down the road and he stopped them and asked them to pose, which they did, although as you could, they're a little blurry, because you know, <laughs> boys are fidgety, right? So they were gonna sit still, but not for very long, um, because they wanted to get back uh, to their game. Um, so who are these boys, do we imagine? We're going to look at them as figures I don't know if you have a 
made these comparisons all the time. And in fact, um, one of the soldiers who came into Charleston in 1865 um, referred to it as our own Pompeii. So that they're, they're constantly making those references back to the classical world, not only in terms of the, um, the ruins themselves, but exactly as you're saying, like these were, Greece and Rome were slave, empires of slavery that fell, right? So we can see in their destruction um, Perhaps then the destruction becomes uh, the road to emancipation, um, that you destroy the buildings and you destroy the economic system which sustained and built them. Um, that is certainly one narrative, like if we were gonna write this sort of longer descriptive caption of this image, that's uh, one possibility um, for sure. Um, any other thoughts about these boys? Oh. Oh, hold on. We got it. Did Union soldiers give them those caps? Are they kind of, you know, they're sort of, um, you can sort of build that whole story in your mind, right? Like the Union soldiers come into town, um, they let um, all of the enslaved people there know that they are now um, not only politically free given the Emancipation Proclamation, but functionally free given the power of the U.S. military in the city, um, and give them their caps. Yeah. And who's just saying that they will? And, they, and our assumption too is, you know, that these are urban slaves, which have a, or former slaves, um, who have a, a, a different kind of experience than slaves on plantations. So obviously, clearly, still slavery. Um, but there's a lot of good historical work um, now on um, on those different kinds of landscapes and how they affected um, people's lives. Um, but the fact that they're boys too, right? This is their their innocence, right? They are. Um, and this, as an image of, of liberation, um, can kind of give us a sense, perhaps, of, of the moral rightness of the Union Army, right, and its cause. And they're not named in the in the title or in any kind of descriptive caption. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking too about how this connects to uh, Northwestern photography of street children, which is happening at this very same mm -hmm. moment, right? And so, Are you talking about like the tenement no, 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 photographs no, no, of later no, or like uh, like exactly news? here? So oh. newsboys, um, bootlegs, mm -hmm. um, and in fact. Uh, Ragged Dick comes out two years after this, you know, just in the story of the youth of England. And so, I mean, I'm wondering if more than the 
it is sort of an association with images of groups of boys sitting outdoors that they've seen in northern urban scenes, which is working boys, mm -hmm. but boys who get paid, mm -hmm. not boys whose labor is exploited. Mm -hmm. Josh, did you well, those actually, those are those <coughs> shots, but they're in the shots, they're all of our studio shots. They're the, oh, really? the photographs of these boys are our, our, our do engravings. Yeah, I guess I'm using engravings. Yeah, yeah. Not, not mm -hmm. the photographs, it's just oh. there isn't really street photographs. Because they are, particularly right. in the city, they're all blue. Right, right. Yeah, so unless we have this opportunity of lots of photographers roaming the landscape, right? Um, looking for subjects and asking people to stop and pose. Um, I was just, I'm interested by the fact that we see the children, the innocence, the sense of play, the sense of possibility, but at the same time, the landscape is so barren and that there's immediate sense of abandonment mm -hmm. the fact that hope um, is, is a difficult concept to Really great point. And this is not a this is not a family grouping, right? This as as a group shot goes. These are clearly, you know, boys who are out playing, which is is freedom, in many ways, but could also be vulnerability, exactly as you're saying. Yeah. So there are all sorts of contrasts here, right? Where he's um, Barnard is using again contrast very effectively with the figures and the architecture. Um, and the rubble and the standing ruins. Um, and I think that the impact, as you all are sort of suggesting, of, of this image depends on our reading of Charleston's ruins and the boys' freedom um, as inextricably linked, right? Um, and the belief that the, Union's army of the, the Union Army's destruction of the city made emancipation possible. However, Charleston was not or this area of Charleston was not reduced to rubble during the Union siege and bombardment of the city, which began in the summer of 1863. Um, the Union was actually posted on, in all of the forts kind of more than two miles outside of the city. And so given the range of artillery um, during this period, they could only really reach the area of the city, if you're familiar with Charleston, of the battery, which is right on the water. So the battery sustained that, and there are photographs of that section of all these, you know, houses as you would see them now rebuilt um, or refurbished with kind of holes punched in them. Um, but this section of the city actually burned to the ground um, during the most destructive fire in Charleston's history, which tore through the city over the course of two days in December 1861. There were rumors that the fire was a slave plot. Citizens of Charles, the white citizens of Charleston were always terrified of slave plots. Um, and very quick to kind of go there <laughs> with that sort of argument, particularly since the war had already begun. Um, however, um, it was pretty quickly determined um, that like most fires in antebellum um, cities, this fire was a byproduct not of war, um, but of industrialization. Um, the fire started in a factory and it spread accidentally. And then the flame, there was a big wind and the Flames spread very quickly among the wooden buildings um, and burned out this whole kind of moved um, 
Charleston's uh, geography always confuses me a little bit, but if you're looking at the map of the city, it moved from right to left in a big line. It basically <laughs> kind of started in this huge swath and just stopped when it hit the water. Um, so it was this whole section um, that was actually further back from the battery. Um, still in the area of town, you can still go around, you can see Circular Church rebuilt and um, Secession Hall rebuilt. Um, in this, it's all part of the historic kind of center of Charleston. Um, but the whole thing was in ruins. Um, and despite the philanthropic donations that came to residents in the weeks after the fire, the funds very quickly dried up. Charleston's officials and businessmen and homeowners could not afford to rebuild uh, most of the structures in the burnt district. And so this is what um, Sherman soldiers found when they marched into uh, Charleston in February 1865. It was this huge area of ruins they were kind of overgrown with weeds um, because they are four years old. They're more than four years old, these ruins. Um, and they have not been, and that's, in fact, if you've seen, there was a, there's another view that Barnard took from um, inside a church steeple of scaffolding around um, uh, parts of the buildings. And it's because they were trying to rebuild, but they have not actually um, rebuilt anything yet. Um, and as in Richmond, um, a good number of the soldiers who marched into the city and saw it in this condition um, were African American soldiers. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so like a the the Cooper's yeah. yeah. No, it doesn't, because it sort of disappears into the, yeah. it should be kind of right here. And I thought that when it's, they played that duplicate yeah. with the stick, anyway, yeah. and, and I don't know it. who's, yeah, someone, one of these guys could be holding the stick and you just don't see it. Um, yeah, I mean, that that is certainly a possibility. I wonder why he'd want, have it across his lap. Yeah, but it doesn't look Yeah, no. I mean, it could just be a trick of the photography that you're just not, since it's at an angle, you're not seeing that bottom part of it. Um, but that, I mean, that is, would be the benefit also of looking at this super close yeah. up, right? Which is the other benefit of digital, <laughs> digital resources now. We can actually do that. We can get in really tight and close up and see if that's there. Um, so that is a possibility and they could have, um, but then why, would they, were they still playing with it anyway, even if it was broken or did Barnard give it to them or what, you know? But these are all really good questions. And you're sort of, as we're looking at these and asking these questions, we're sort of building this narrative uh, in our mind. But this is, and, and actually, when you go on tours of this section of, uh, of Charleston, they show you these photographs as Civil War, as Union destroyed yeah. section. And I'm always like, <clears throat> I'll talk to you later. I don't want to ruin your whole vibe. But that's wrong. Um, so, but you can see why this served Barnard's purposes, right? He doesn't tell you this was the ruins of, of Charleston, South Carolina, created in December 1861 because of a factory fire, and then taken in 1865, right? Um, because it interferes with this uh, narrative that he's trying to create um, here at the end of the war, where like the South must be destroyed in order for emancipation to occur, and so these boys who are the future um, of the South and of a free South 
so that they can kind of be here and survive and thrive, even though the barrenness of the ruins kind of messes with that as well. Can you, you said the caption was very long, but can you yeah. read just a little bit of it so we can tell how you framed this particular photograph? Well, did, do you I actually do, I do not have the full caption on me at the moment. If you look it up, this is in the Library of Congress website. Someone, if you have your computer, you can look it up really quickly. But it's a, yeah, it's basically, um, something like Charleston, South Carolina, view of ruined buildings, uh, Meeting Street, uh, Circular Church, Meeting Street, um, 1865, something. But I think it's even longer than that. May I even have a street address, like 140 Meeting Street. So you could actually <laughs> put that into Google Maps and go find it. Um, but yeah, if, if someone wants to look that up, you can, it'll, that will be in the metadata because it is long. So these are just two of several instances in which photographers used bodies among architectural ruins uh, to create their own narratives of the war. Um, and how at the end of the war, this, you know, that, and part of this narrative is that the end, at the end of the war, the South got what they deserved, which was destruction, right? And that destruction was necessary um, for emancipation to occur, for the war to end. Um, but knowing their context, I think, reveals new and interesting conditions of warfare, like defensive burning, um, and connections like the links between industrialization, urbanization, and warfare, which I don't think we talk about um, as much. I mean, we talk about um, the impact of, of these evolving, more modern t killing technologies on bodies, which we'll see in a second, but we don't often think about them in terms of um, urban destruction as well, even though fire the most ancient form and uh, not particularly technological form of destruction itself. All right, so what about um, bodies at the end of the war? Do they have the same kind of visual resonance as uh, architectural ruins? And do photographers kind of mess with them in some of the same ways or sort of silence some things or misdirect um, in a way that will make you kind of read the image um, in the way that they want you to read it. Um, so this is <coughs> Matthew Brady and company. We don't exactly know which of his band of photographers took this, um, but it, it was definitely one of his guys, um, of a ward in Carver Hospital in Washington, D.C., which was um, one of the hospitals that the Union Army established fairly late in the war in 1864. Um, it used to be a, an army barracks, so this is an interesting uh, component of um, the history of all, all of these hospitals. It's really actually fascinating if any of you are interested in like, medical history of the war. Um, these hospital landscapes, everyone was fascinated with them as they were with camp landscapes. There were a lot of, um, if you've seen any of the patriotic envelopes that were printed during the war, um, a lot of them included images of hospital landscapes because they were totally kind of new, um, very large, very bureaucratically run and organized um, military landscapes that a lot of people had not really seen before. So here was an opportunity um, to create something wholly new. So here, here are soldiers who, you know, these particular soldiers were probably not, um, in fact, trained at this particular barracks, but this is a building that had sheltered soldiers before they went to war, and now it is sheltering soldiers as they come back. Um, so like photographs of bodies among ruins, um, many images of bodily ruins also echo 
landscape uh, painting traditions. This photograph has some of those same aspects that the ruins images have, right? We have the center line extending back into the horizon. Uh, we have the symmetry of the men sitting on their beds and sort of growing in number uh, into the background and converging in space. Uh, we have the contrast between the pure white bed linens, which are probably not exactly pure white, um, and the patient's dark clothing, um, some of which are uniform, some are not. Um, and then the, the uh, echoing there with the stars and the stripes of the flags and the, the decorations here. Um, and these are always interesting. It's unclear to me. We don't know exactly when this photo was taken, so I don't know if this was you know, coming around the July 4th holiday or if this was just how the ward was usually decorated. There's another image of Carver Hospital that does not have any of these decorations in it. Um, but like soldiers in camp, um, doctors and nurses and injured uh, soldiers also decorated hospital wards. Um, either to recognize holidays or, you know, well, it was mostly to recognize holidays. So they would go out and string garlands and, and do things like this um, for this purpose. And I actually, I consulted with um, Bob Zeller from, this, from the Center of Civil War Photography because I did not know what was going on with this patch in the center, which looked to me initially like it was Photoshopped. Um, in the, in the 1860s term of photoshopping, um, which they could do. They could do you know, superimposing. Because it looked so bizarre to me. I was like, what is that? It's like this strange. But we figured out together, because there are two stars actually in the corner, it was a gauzy sort of hanging. So you can still see what's behind it, um, which is rows and rows of more injured men and also more kind of decor. Um, in the rafters here. So, so what is the narrative that Brady is trying to create with this photograph? We've got some whole bodies here, and then we have some amputees sort of front and center. This man right here, and then this one who's really And this is the sort of where are the silences um, and where are 
who has been kind of either cropped out of the photo or not, deliberately not included. Um, and the, those are very good questions to ask. Because yes, we only see, we see two white women in this photo, otherwise it's a very male-dominated space um, of injured uh, soldiers. Um, but we also don't see black women who were all over um, hospitals in the, this is in the DC, Washington DC area. And they were doing all sorts of work. They were doing nursing work, they were um, doing laundry, they were doing all sorts of work in hospitals in DC. Um, some of them were um, fugitive slaves, some of them um, were from the DC area, some were free and had traveled there to do work, um, you know, just like a lot of other um, uh, women, and also Walt Whitman, who went to Carver Hospital and has a couple of sections where he talks about this is the hospital where he buys everyone ice cream treats. Um, if you have read his really outstanding um, uh, work on um, the wounded and the dead in those hospitals. So um, yeah, you don't see, and this is a, um, with photographers, it's always, you know, what is their a, a photograph of opportunity? What is their deliberate choice? And sort of put, you know, did he ask people to sit anywhere? Is he inviting people to come in and be in the photograph? Or uh, is he just setting up and taking the photo as is? Um, but they are not present in this photograph. Yeah. here are black soldiers, right, who have been wounded. There are plenty of them in the field of being wounded by this point. So where are they? Um, are they in different hospitals entirely? Are they not being cared for in the exact same way? Are they not being imagined kind of in this? Because you're exactly right. This, the, I mean, the, the flags and the long, the I mean, this is probably the most obvious depiction of the patriotic soldier, the wound, the empty sleeve, the sort of men sacrificing for the nation. Uh, but it's only white men, you know, being cared for by a handful of white women. You know, so very specific view here of this. Yeah. No, I'm also still cleaned up. I mean, no one's lying in there. Where's our wheelbarrow of severed limbs? Which has become the like yeah. visual trope in every single Civil War film. Right. Like I mean, it's not people yeah. lying there with suffering, right. about to <coughs> die from their injuries. That right. these, these guys have all survived, right, on whatever terms. At least initially, yes. yes. Yeah. And and the it's the cleanliness. Yes. You know, the, I mean, it's not just order, but it's also like the 
white, white, white sheets. There's no blood. There's no yep. gloss. There's no, there's no spatter. Right. There's no nothing. Yep. It's just, um, it's as though this hospital itself is a place of order and cleanliness and sanitariness and recovery yes. rather than the place where you go and you can get infected and die. Right. Which happens a lot of the time. And that they lived with those injuries um, and so 
provide with them and were not recognized for them, found them impossible to prove to the pension office, so they were not even sort of um, given money in exchange um, for those sacrifices, but that they should be counted among the wounded. We don't see them, right, because their injury is not clear to us visually. So we do have, you know, some men who are sitting here and standing here where their their injury is not fully evident to us. Um, but your eye is most drawn to the men with the missing limbs. Um, because that is what you think. Uh, yeah, I did have a comment because I'm surprised that this hasn't come up yet because it needs to start the show because the wheelchair in the middle I can't even think if I've seen a wheelchair in a photograph from the Singapore. So it must have been yeah. um, I don't know why that is. Maybe because they were so expensive that they weren't often in hospitals. I get the sense that this is like a special, I mean, certainly where it's positioned at the center of the right. photograph. Right. And the way that you can so clearly see with the white pants, the amputated leg, and the wheelchair together, it seems to me that's ostensibly the subject of the photograph, actually, is, is both the surrounding hospital, but also very specifically this man. That right. injury and the wheelchair. And the wheelchair. That's really, I don't actually know the history of the wheelchair in terms of when it was created. Um, that would be a really fascinating project uh, because you know, prosthetics were in common usage and this was usually the, the um, form of treatment or the sort of, and in these hospitals, if, if you have accounts of um, particularly amputees, they talk about getting fitted for trying to walk on these prosthetics, which you know today's prosthetics are you know, so by so many leaps and bounds, so much better. Um, but still incredibly painful. You have to get them fitted to you, and they have to work properly. And um, you know, when you have a dicey amputation in the field, and it's just not working, it's very painful. So actually, um, a significant percentage of amputees actually rejected um, their uh, prosthetics, and they would just use crutches, or maybe even. Although I would agree, I would think that a wheelchair would be incredibly expensive during this time period. So, but that would be yeah. If you were looking for a <laughs> There's one, and you can start with this photo. You'd be like, it is the star, uh, the wheelchair in this photograph. Um, so yeah, so these, this is another kind of, um, you know, mostly in Ruin Nation, I was looking at individual amputees and sort of what they were um, telegraphing about the nation, but when you have all of these wounded men together, um, it creates an interesting and different kind of image that brings up a lot of questions, which um, are really important to ask. Um, <coughs> and when we're considering what is made both invisible and visible, this is also a good question to ask in the most graphic images of bodily ruination, which I think we're all more familiar with, which are the dead bodies on the field of battle, um, and then also um, images like these with the bones of soldiers. So this is a John Rickey photograph who was a gardener photographer. Um, and Gardner took this photograph and printed it in this second volume of the photographic sketchbook. Um, so it comes near the end of his, if we're thinking about photo, um, photographic albums as a kind of visual narrative of the war, the, all of those photographs are organized chronologically. They sort of go through the paces of you know, what, what is the war and what is its meaning. And this one comes near the end. Um, and it is entitled, A Burial Party, Cold Harbor, Virginia. Um, and this is taken in, 18, in April 1865, so right at the very end of the war. 
Um, so this is another image in which we see a lot of symmetry, but also contrast, um, that the members of this burial party, even though we have um, the single figure front and center with the stretcher, which is usually used to take wounded soldiers off the field of battle, right, and is now being used to collect the bones of the dead who had fallen in the battle uh, more than, well, a little less than a year before. Um, they're arranged at different distances, but they're all symmetrical, right? We move from left to right, and they're fairly kind of, e well, not exactly evenly spaced, but they are kind of spread out in the image. There's also another version of this photograph, which is taken from more of an angle where he is not, this central figure is not sitting here. He is kind of off, and you're seeing it more from the side. Um, but that one is also um, also somewhat symmetrical, but Gardner didn't choose it, right, for the photographic album. So this one, um, he clearly preferred. Um, and this, this kind of stretcher of skulls and body parts that's centered in the foreground um, has that contrast, the sort of bright white of the skulls um, are contrasted um, with the dark skin of the men working. There is some debate about the figure on the left here, if this um, is if this is a burial party, um, if this is the sort of white officer who's in charge of these um, other black men, who and that creates um, a different kind of context, right, of the work um, the black men were doing in the Union Army in the last part of the war, at the end of the war. Um, and again, this is just called a burial party. Um, and I'll talk about why that's interesting here in a second, but we also have the contrast of the whole bodies of the men who have survived the war, right? And the completely disarticulated bodies um, of the men who have not. Um, and so these bodies are different, right? From the wounded bodies and then also the more anonymous um, bodies of the group shots of the boys at the pillar. Um, these are literally bodies in pieces. Um, and there are um, not a lot of these images of, of bones and, and skulls during the war. There's sort of more than injured bodies on the field of battle and then um, in hospitals. But when they appear, they are really, as I think you'll probably agree, really striking um, here. So um, Gardner's caption for this photograph is really interesting because, I mean, we pay a lot of attention to the images in the photographic sketchbooks, but he actually provides very lengthy narrative descriptions. Um, and this is, I'm just going to read this section to you because it's fascinating. This sad scene represents the soldiers in the act of collecting the remains of their comrades killed at the battles of Gaines Mill and Cold, Har Cold Harbor. It speaks ill of the residents of that part of Virginia that they allowed even the remains of those they considered enemies to decay unnoticed where they fell. The soldiers, to whom commonly falls the task of burying the dead, may possibly have been called away before the task was completed. At such times, the native dwellers of the neighborhood would usually come forward and provide sepulcher for, as, for such as had been left uncovered. Cold Harbor, however, was not the only place where Union men were left unburied. So what interests me about that long caption is that he depicts these men as soldiers. The burial party are soldiers. They don't look to be fully in uniform, although some members of the party do have the kepi hats on. Um, and then he calls them comrades. So that's 
really interesting. And then he also makes this assertion, which is true, that it fell to the soldiers to bury the dead, which is true. Both white and black soldiers um, did this work. They also did a lot of other work um, that was not fighting. Although, um, you know, what we know about African American uh, companies and regiments in the field is that they were often put to labor more often than they were um, put to battle. Um, and that this was something they found very objectionable and should have, and they wanted the right to fight um, for their own freedom and not just dig graves or trenches or um, build forts or cut down trees. Um, so here they are depicted as laborers, but also as comrades. Um, so is there anything to you that this, that this photograph kind of either makes visible or invisible? in particular signals to you, right? Like, these are soldiers, right? Because otherwise, we don't know, right? Like, are these white soldiers? We don't know, right? Are they black soldiers? Like, the, the bodies, right? We don't know. Um, because all their bones are the same color. So that that's an interesting, but they lose, so they lose this whole uh, notion of individuality. We have no idea who they are. Um, sometimes they would find things when they were um, out <coughs> reburying soldiers that would identify who they were, but most of the time not. And this, this create this is very disturbing, right? We want, um, you know, at least with the the photographs um, that Gardner and others were taking on the field of battle, you could maybe figure out who they were, or sort of. Um, I think the the New York Times review of the um, Antietam photographs. Uh, makes reference to a woman who's kind of bending down to look at the photograph and sees her own son, right? That you can actually visually identify people, but you cannot identify them here, right? They're too disarticulated. Um, but at the same time, the fragments of the bodies themselves very much articulate the cost of war, right? Yeah. So we're talking about the notion of individuality being gone in the skulls, but certainly this image of this um, black soldier in really see his face. Yes. Unlike many of the others, it's a very stark contrast between that um, inability to identify who may have been the face of the skull versus now a very identifiable man. Yeah. They are staring directly at you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and his gaze is very direct. Yeah. Very direct. And also just how bad skull in particular is so directly sort of visual parallel reference, yeah. Definitely, yeah, and the, and the look on his face, you know, it's very grim and very serious, like, and this, and this is a job that they took very seriously, um, because again, the tone of that description blames Southerners, right, and saying they did not bury the dead, this is their kind of moral failing 
that they did not do this. And there was a lot of this kind of, there was actually this kind of critique on both sides, that both Northerners and Southerners were very uncivilized in the way that they treated each other's bodies. Um, there was a very inflammatory political cartoon um, that appeared in a, in a Northern newspaper that just said, it was just said a Confederate parlor, and everything in the parlor is made out of bone fragments. Because there was a lot of like discussion of soldiers like taking body parts as souvenirs, and they would send them home and say, "Here's a finger of a Union soldier. Keep it for me." Right. So they would have, and so and this um, political car cartoon was very inflammatory, um, and in fact, I think it was part of an investigation that um, Union government was doing on uncivilized practices, like savage practices, on the battlefield. Um, so this could be part of this kind of context too. One, and to follow up on that, we're talking about this idea that uh, part of being a soldier, part of being able to fight for the Union, for the African-American male, was the, being able to say, I am a man with equality quality going forward in 1865. <coughs> and if we're contrasting that with the concept of Southern brutality, you know, right. the, the narrative this is trying to evoke is that the this, this Southern use this image to kind of launch a discussion of, of perhaps reconstruction politics and sort of um, how, how these figures are being used and what the critique is um, of Southern civilians. Will they, if they don't even care about, you know, the enemy dead, are they going to care about these black men who are living right there in their midst? You know, probably not. They're not, they're not depicted as being soldiers, right? Visually, even though he describes them as such, the main figure you see is wearing a knit cap and not a kepi, right? So 
So that, I think you're exactly right. Like this is an image that is both shocking but also comforting in that um, the black men in it are doing manual labor to honor the sacrifice, to bury the soldiers who, you know, and the assumption probably here is that they're white soldiers um, and that they have died in this cause for both union and freedom. And that, you know, they are uh, the burial party is kind of doing necessary work, but that's doing work that is honoring that goal, which I think, yeah, is comforting to white viewers who may not respond as uh, positively, perhaps, to images either of black wounded soldiers, um, like I think you saw in the Met, the triptych um, by Waterman Wood, the, the soldier who um, is a slave, then a soldier, then an amputee. Um, they may not be as comfortable with that and the claim to citizenship that that suggests. Um, whereas this is, yeah, this is, they're still doing a kind of form of manual, not agricultural exactly, although they are digging and airing. Um, oh, five minutes, I have to wrap it up. All right, I'm gonna show you one more image. This is in fact my last image, so I'm feeling pretty proud. <laughs> I'm feeling pretty proud of the pace right now, but this is um, related because um, if any of you have read Drugup and Faust, This Republic of Suffering, then you know um, that, uh, like the, um, the point that you made about the bureaucratic kind of um, machine of the Union uh, Medical Department, as you can see in the Carver Hospital image, um, then is transferred into this huge effort at the end of the war to locate and um, sometimes disinter and then rebury soldiers who've either been left in the field of battle um, or have been sort of buried elsewhere, root graves, and the creation of a national cemetery system as, again, a way to <coughs> connect the, the ruined bodies of soldiers to a larger national purpose and to a patriotic kind of government um, structure. So um, this is uh, Geo Brown. He was actually a Baltimore photographer. Um, a photograph that he took called Wounded Trees and Grants Lines Near Cemetery Number 2 Wilderness. And um, in the Library of Congress metadata, the date it gives it is 1864, um, which I think is actually wrong. And um, I use this image in Ruination, um, in, at least I think I do, um, in order to talk about the destruction of trees, because this is the title, right? Wounded trees um, in Grant's lines. Um, so the, this is a very common, um, kind of image and also assertion that trees uh, were destroyed during the war and that they were um, kind of similar to wounded veterans in some ways, um, that they were witnesses to battle, um, you know, they had trunks and limbs, that you could sort of describe them in similar ways to human bodies and they're sort of uh, linked together in interesting ways. So if you look, uh, so this is a stereo card, so you've seen these before, and if you look really closely, there's, you know, all the wounded trees and then there's all this leaf matter and then there is a so in the stereo card, when you put it in there, the skull is what leaps at you in the foreground, in the 3D. So in 2D, it looks kind of masked, but in 3D, it really pops. So this, I think, is connected to the, the image before in interesting ways, because on the surface, it seems like an image um, of a forest and it's a sort of attention to the trees, but it's actually another burial image. Um, because of that notation, near cemetery number two, um, wilderness field, um, 
In June 1865, in response to complaints about the dead left unburied on the battlefields around Fredericksburg, which is where the wilderness is um, very close by, the federal government dispatched um, the first U.S. veteran volunteers to undertake reburial of the bodies at the wilderness battlefield in northern Virginia. Um, so the first regiment began collecting skeletons in June um, of 1865. Uh, they started at the northern end of the battlefield. They sort of worked their way. And so we can imagine a burial party doing this also, right? They're sort of working their way in a line through the woods and the thickets and the fields and the swamps, searching for human remains. Um, and then they would kind of halt, change direction, move again, and try to find uh, graves that had been marked in whatever way they would have been marked, or again, body parts, skulls, bones. And then they would gather those up um, into big sacks, um, and then usually bury them together in a mass grave. Uh, so here is another image um, of how to treat the dead, although the caption is very misleading, right? You wouldn't necessarily know that except for the near cemetery number two, which is, as you would imagine, the second cemetery that was created to handle all of the um, body parts of Fredericksburg. Um, but then this is a very different image because we do not have, what's missing here is the burial party, right? They're not there. So who were the first veteran volunteers? Where did they come from? Why were they still serving? Were they still serving because they kind of found that they liked army life and they re-upped? Or were they serving, as Greg has known to me, as <laughs> they hadn't told them they could go yet? <laughs> they hadn't been mustered out. Um, how were they actually serving? So we don't see them. And instead, we have this very different image of bodies in nature. Right? And this, to me, also is an interesting comparison to the hospital image. Um, but instead, so instead of connecting the, the kind of abandoned body parts of veterans or of soldiers um, to the kind of patriarchal and patriotic kind of government superstructure is being connected to nature. That the death here is naturalized, it is part of a natural cycle, um, and being co-opted into that space instead. It is a different narrative, but connected, right? That this is to be expected. Um, that death, perhaps, is not unnatural. Um, but in fact, uh, the most natural thing that can happen, although in warfare, you know, comes probably sooner and more violently uh, than it would otherwise. Um, so just to kind of wrap this up, um, Images of bodies among ruins or in ruin were central to the ways that Americans understood and remembered the Civil War. Um, both architectural destruction and bodily destruction occurred on a scale unknown um, or unseen before the Civil War and were both common subjects of photographers in 1864-65. They helped to convey the cost of war in terms of lives and property lost, the patriotism and sacrifice that dead soldiers and wounded veterans' bodies conveyed, um, and especially in the eyes of Union photographers, the fault of Southerners in bringing this about and the moral rightness of the South's destruction. And I think they show us, and can show our students as well, how visual images were just as ambiguous and often disingenuous um, as other forms of wartime narratives. Right? Thank you guys very much.